This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Sochi Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your debut novel, Olga Dies Dreaming, is just out. This is a story of colonization and gentrification and capitalism and wedding planning. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, all those things. And I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. I have to ask something, though, because I was looking at your note at the back of the book, and I'm dying to know the story behind this because you said you pivoted at age 40 and your colleagues at Hunter College were really supportive. I need to know what's going on. There's also a note about shopping at Nordstrom Rack. So there's backstory here that I oh my gosh! before we get into Olga. There's so much backstory. You know, I'd always been a bit of a writer. Like in high school, I always wrote poems and short stories. And then I got kind of intimidated out of it when I got to college. Like my college roommate had won the Seventeen Magazine Fiction Writing Contest twice, which basically meant that she was a Nobel laureate as far as I was concerned. And I was like, I can't do this. And then I sort of put it to the side. And then I turned 40 and, you know, my grandmother had just died. And I was on the phone with my old friend from junior high and high school. And she works in publishing. And I was like, I kind of think I want to write. And I'm literally like, like looking for like a cheap blouse to wear to a party or something. And she was like, you absolutely need to do that. And that was what you were meant to do. And she just said it very matter of factly. And so I started this elaborate pivot from my wedding planning business and like pulling away and eventually selling it. And I took this job at Hunter College. And like, you know, I had this wackadoo resume to be totally honest, where it's like, I've been wedding planning. And I was like, is anybody going to hire me? And the president of Hunter College, I'm a super competent person, but like I could see how on paper it's like, she was like, I like the cut of your jib. Like literally, she's like, I'm going to put you in charge of fundraising. And little did she know that I was going to go to Breadloaf, like get so much out of this experience, realize like I could get better at this. I'm like, I'm going to go for my MFA. And then like I get goaded on to like, just take a chance, apply to Iowa. I thought I would just go at night and like keep my little day job right in the morning, you know, like create kind of actually a nightmarish scenario for life for two years. But I was like, I'll figure it out. And then I applied to Iowa. I could not believe that I actually got in and I have the best girlfriends in the world that I've been friends with for like, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. And they were like, you could take the long road or you could go the short way and just do it. And so I packed everything up. I gave up my rent control department in Fort Greene to go to Iowa City and I just knew if I was going to do an MFA, I wanted to walk out with a novel. Like, I love short stories. I learned a lot about writing from them, but like, I'm not really a short story writer. And there is nothing I love more than novels, big, weird, complicated novels. And so I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And so I started working on Olga in the mornings and at, on weekends, like while I was still working at Hunter. And then literally like, you know, I'm just kind of finally getting settled. And they're like, you're made for this place. And I was like, I got into the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, but I kind of need to move. <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't have been nicer or more excited about it. But I then in August packed everything up of 20, this is 2019. And I started my MFA and like five days later, I turned 42. And then I'm in Iowa and I'm like almost twice as old as the rest of my colleagues there. I did make great friends. I was kind of like the TT of the program. Like I was like literally like the aunt of the program. I was like, come over, I'll make chicken and rice. Like, you know, like I was like, and I do that like once a week, but mainly I was like with my imaginary friends and that's who was keeping me company because there's not that much to do in Iowa city, especially coming from Brooklyn. But I don't know. It was, it was like, what a gift. It's funny because when you're young, you have this phase where it's like, everybody's married and you're divorced. I, for me, it was like, you're divorced. Everybody's having kids. You didn't have any kids. And you feel like, what did I do? Did I do the right thing? And then you hit this age and all of your married friends are like, good for you. <laughs> it's like, 
go do it, chase the dream. Like, so it was just this wild experience. And by the end of the first semester, I had a full draft during my winter break. I did like intense revision. I'm a crazy person. Like it was like such a privilege to like not get to have to do anything else, but dive into this crazy world that I had created. And then it went out and it sold and it found this beautiful home at Flatiron. And so I called my girlfriend, Sharon, and I was like, you weren't kidding. It really was the shortest path. Like I just, (laughs) I hadn't anticipated it happening quite so fast. The story felt so formed in me that it was really just having access to the time to kind of get to put it onto the page. And it was the most fun that I've had in a really long time. And I I don't know, it was just a pleasure to get to do that. And I tell Sam Chang at Iowa all the time that I want to scream from the mountaintops that like, what an amazing experience to get to get off the hamster wheel. And I had encouraged so much debt going to undergrad, which is like, you know, a teeny weeny sub theme of Olga's journey and life choice and, you know, and all these things. And it was like, it was like my own kid was getting to chase their dreams. Like it took 20 years, but I got to do this thing and it's a fully funded program. And it was a gift to myself. And I know now it's like this cool thing to see that this got birthed from that. So it's exciting. Yeah. So moving to Iowa City for the writer's workshop, was that the first time you'd lived outside of Brooklyn for any significant amount of time? Outside of college? because Outside of college. Oh, yeah. Outside of college? Absolutely. Oh, my wow. God. And I remember being in high school and being desperate to get out of Brooklyn. Like, I was like, I got to shake this two-bit town. <laughs> You're like, like, it's like, a, and Brooklyn then was super blue collar. We were like running around, drinking 40s on the beach, like sneaking into raves. Like I, I was like, what am I going to do here? And then, of course, as soon as I got away to Providence and was like, get me back to Brooklyn. And then, you know, and then of course, in the subsequent years, Brooklyn has changed so much. Like I remember I was like at graduation, everybody's like, I'm moving to Brooklyn. And I was like, why? Like, like leave me alone. <laughs> it's totally changed. But at the same time, you know, I mean, I keep that part of it in my heart. And this was kind of my homage. Or as I had said to somebody, I was like, I wanted to put like a stake in the ground to the version of Brooklyn that I knew. It's not a race, but obviously like lots of writers live in Brooklyn, mainly transplanted writers. You know, I'm glad that they're here, but like you're getting their experience documented on a page. And so I had just not seen in contemporary writing my Brooklyn. It felt important to me to get it at this granularly detailed level that like, if you grew up here, you'd be like Caesar's Bay. Like it's like, you know, like just all of that weird stuff that only people from here would sort of know. And those Easter eggs felt very precious, precious to me somehow. Yeah. Which I totally get, but I didn't grow up in Brooklyn. And yet this story still speaks to me. Just living in America now, the rates of gentrification, the people that we're seeing pushed out of their longtime neighborhoods. I mean, yeah. this isn't autofiction, but you and Olga do share some characteristics. And Olga is the child of parents who've met during what we call the Brown Power Movement in yeah. the 70s. They, yeah. are, they are radicals. Her dad is one of the young lords, which is not dissimilar to the Black Panthers. Yep. And her mom is raising them, but ultimately leaves because motherhood and marriage is just not her thing. And just the time in which mom is coming of age, she doesn't have any options. She can get married and have kids. That's literally, that's her path. And for some women, that doesn't work. Olga has a brother, Prieto, who goes on to be a congressman. (laughs) (laughs) And he's kind of thrown into the middle of all of this gentrification as well. And then there's her cousin, Mabel. It really does kind of represent a different piece of Brooklyn as well. And we're going to kind of focus on them. Yeah. And there are a couple of other people that are going to pop in. There's there's a guy called Matteo. 
there's a bigger cast than that, but these are really the characters that are the heart and soul and, and everyone sort of orbits around Olga. So I have to ask, is Olga the first character that came to you? I mean, did you know that she was going to be the heart of this book? Her soul, but not her career. Like I had started a bunch of tiny short stories. They were all about like a middle-aged Latina living in Brooklyn that had changed and fitting in and not fitting in. There was one that was sort of this very brooding piece about overeating after exercise class and realizing that she's never going to have the same body as all these other girls in the class, but then being stressed about it because like that felt like the success body, you know, like, and I think a lot of it was like her circumstances. Like there was like one teeny story about her at a, like an alumni function and like all of her internal, like, you know, turmoil. And so I think originally I had wanted her to have the career that I thought I was going to have when I got out of college, like working in like the art world. I was a fine art and art history major. And, you know, she worked at an auction house at one point. And then when push came to shove, I was like, you know, really who she is, is you had you never gone to therapy like and I'd been in therapy for like 10 years at this point and so I kind of leaned into it it is not autofiction because I've been in therapy <laughs> wedding planning I did for 13 years at the highest levels oh I would speak at like wedding planning conferences of like engage exclamation point like yes it's a great conference actually it's a lot of fun but <laughs> like it's a great way to look at class and it did cause me a lot of strange inner turmoil about like I self-selected a service job, even though I didn't need to self-select a service job. And like, what was that? And I never spoken to my parents about it. You know, we have a strange relationship, but I could tell they thought it was a bizarre path. And I just thought it gave access to a whole plethora of people. And, you know, and I think there is something cool about getting to write about something with real veracity. You know what I mean? That was the quickest stuff to get on the page. I did so much weird research about other things, but like that was like, uh, napkins, like absolutely. <laughs> and so I would say she's like what I think of as like an avatar for experiences that I had. And I, I did kind of want to think about a character that hadn't gone to therapy because I do think within my community, within the Latinx community and within just generally some communities of color, therapy is something that's sort of like secret to and like hard to get yourself to somewhat do. And so I thought that felt very authentic. It was really just because I was going through such a crazy period. Like I got divorced, my grandfather was dying, it was a recession and I was like, I need a little help. And so I definitely loved to get to look at the world through that lens. And, and so, yeah, like, you know, we both had this kind of activist parent background. We both were wedding planners. We're both from South Brooklyn. I have no siblings. I was raised by two grandparents, not one, but like we definitely share some autobiographical bits for sure. But, and then it's sort of the way in which we engage with the world changes, but it was speculative in that sense. <laughs> That's awesome. And I have to say, I appreciated the riff on non-linty napkins. Oh. Sorry. I just, <laughs> linty napkins bun me out. They, no, they totally, linty napkins totally, they bum me out completely. And that's such a random thing to throw into a podcast, but they bum me out. <laughs> As they should. No, I am actually like a total napkin snob. I'm not a wedding snob at all. Like you just get me to wedding. I'm so happy. I'm not working. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> I'm like, but the napkin thing, I'm always like, ah, nice napkin. <laughs> Here's Olga. She has been in school in Manhattan. She's sort of left the neighborhood behind a little bit, even though she yes. still lives there. Yes. And the kids that she used to run with, including her cousin, Mabel, who now has a really stable job at Con Ed, maybe not the best dude, but Mabel's getting married. She's yep. getting married finally. <laughs> She's getting married. <laughs> but there's already this idea in the community that Olga's sort of left them behind. Yeah. And she's really alone. 
Yeah. Her brother's her best friend. And he's not really that available to her. He's a congressman. He's got some stuff going on. We're going to let readers discover what Prieto has going on. And she's got one foot in Manhattan and the wedding planning and the money and the clients and everything else. And then she's got one foot back in Sunset Park. Yeah. It's really hard for her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a big inspiration for me when I was writing this was the house on Mango Street and Esperanza. You know, there's something that we don't talk about, which I think is like the underside of success and ambition, which is that like for every step that we take towards something, it's a step away from something. And the more that we have these rarefied experiences, the more isolating they can be. Like I'll say like even that strange experience of going to Iowa at 40 was a very isolating experience because I was leaving all my friends. I was leaving my support system. And then even getting to Iowa, now I find this new common ground with my peers. Then I have this rare experience of selling my book while still there and just starting the program and being in the midst of all of that. And so then I was sort of like immediately back to being a working professional and going to school. And so that's not to say that I didn't form bonds there, but it's to just say like, I was living the example of it as I was like writing about it, going to graduate school at 42. The difference is you walk in and you're like, it's two academic years that's going to fly. So you feel like you're on borrowed time, right? Because you have a, just a different sense of how time moves than you do in your 20s, like, right? And so I was just like, I was like, I have the set amount of time and then who knows what's going to happen with life. I've got to get back to adulting. And so I was really like, like writing like my life was on the line in some weird way. And I'm sure that my classmates thought I was like crazy. They're like, come have a drink at the Fox. <laughs> like, you know? And uh, what I wanted to show was, for so many, you know, first-gen, low-income women and people that have these opportunities, that it is this isolating experience and it can be very lonely. And that in order to move forward, it does mean some extension, like making yourself somewhat mysterious to the community from which you came from, because they don't completely understand why you want to leave. And they don't necessarily understand what it is that you're doing with all of your time. And so you find yourself in different phases of not being completely comprehended, because you're also moving into circles where you aren't exactly part of it. And so I didn't feel I had quite seen that emotional journey documented and that felt intensely important to me because I know that it's, I'm like going to get emotional. Um, I just know that it's something that so many women have gone through and like, and I just wanted to put that on the page. Sorry, that's so weird. <laughs> I just, it does like mean a lot to me. And I, I would reread The House on Mango Street as I would get older. And I had the chance to interview Sandra Cisneros recently. And I told her this and I was like, I remember as a teenager and in my twenties reading it and be like, go Esperanza, go. And then like in my third and into my 40s reading it and getting so emotional because I knew how hard it would be for her when she would get to that next phase. So uh, yeah, like the loneliness felt an important part of who Olga is when you meet her, for sure. And House on Mango Street isn't the only touchstone book for you. You reread 100 Years of Solitude once a year. I reread 100 Years of Solitude once a year. Oh my God, there's no book like it. There never will be. There's no book like it. And again, it's another thing. Like, I wish my Spanish were better because at one point in my life, I want to read it as it was originally written, even though it's, I think, a beautiful translation. But like, just this idea of legacy and family and these inherited traits. And and I always think like my grandmother was such a, a moody, strange individual. And we would always say Rebecca buried herself alive after my grandfather died. It's just the most beautiful book. And I, I reread a lot. Like, I reread John Irving before I started this. I love John Irving and I reread Fortress of Solitude before I started this. 
we've got Garcia Marquez, we've got Irving, and now we've got Jonathan Latham on top. I know, I know three white guys. Like I also read the cell. I, I read the House of Mango Street, obviously. I love these big weird books though. Like, and I think we've trended towards slimmer novels, linked novels, which I love, but like I definitely had this fondness in my heart for like getting totally dropped into a world. Like The World According to Garp is one of my favorite books because you're like, what a weird life. Like it's just like like I'd follow that life like a million times. I just love that kind of immersive experience. And they just did that for me. But like Hundred Years of Solitude is like a religious experience, like once a year. <laughs> So wait, the Latham though, was that for the Brooklyn? I mean, Fortress of Solitude is yeah. the novel that's set in Brooklyn. That was set in Brooklyn. That's his gentrification novel. And I remember reading it. I had a book club um, when I was in my 20s. The greatest part about getting out of college is like you are just reading for pleasure again. And I don't think I ever devoured more books kind of those first few years out of school. I had a book club, but it was all my friends from high school and like from the neighborhood that I would hang out with. And I remember us reading that and it was like everybody's favorite book. It's such a deep place in the heart of so many of us because all these people that had never been here suddenly moving to Brooklyn and watching it and this idea of like, what do you own? What do you not own? Who are these childhood friends? How do we still relate to them? How do we not? And growing out of each other and like, you know, and it's a complicated book, but like I had reread it mainly for the sense of law, like how he conveys that sense of loss felt so important to me. There's a lot in Olga where, you know, you watch her walk through the world and she walks through her neighborhood. She's living in a very gentrifying Fort Greene and she goes back home to Sunset Park and you kind of see the world through her eyes. And it was like this opportunity to personalize how that feels when you're from here is like how each change, like you notice each change and you're like, what? What's that? Like, it's like, it's like, it feels like it's like clawing at you like a weird little horror movie. <laughs> it's like you see shutters on a restaurant and you're like, they're going out of business. What are they doing with that building? Like you're like little antenna go up and you're like, like so suspicious. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a weird thing that you're very attuned to the vibe of things. And when you start to notice the teeny changes because you realize that it's going to bubble up and become something bigger. Colson Whitehead has a great book called The Colossus of New York. And I need to read it. It's yes, like you do. Third, you that's do. the third time it's come on my radar, like in two you weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's good. To, that's great because I haven't ever read it. And one of the things he says in this book though, and it's so true, and I've been back in New York for a really, really long time. And I've seen a lot of different incarnations of New York. And there's some that I miss and some that I don't. And sometimes I'm walking around going, is this really still New York? I'm not entirely sure. And that's essentially what he's saying is your New York, every iteration of your New York yep. is really based on the places around you. And that's something that the, your book really speaks to. Yes. And Olga meets this dude, Mateo, who will let readers figure out Mateo's story, but he's very well-intentioned and he's a good guy. And he clocks landmarks in yeah. Brooklyn. Yeah. And when I say landmarks, I don't mean fancy buildings. Yeah. I don't mean buildings with pedigree. He likes the bodega on the corner because he knows the people when he goes to buy his coffee. It's that sense of community. And that's not something that's limited to Manhattan or Brooklyn nope. or you know the Bronx or, or anything like that. It really is place as we know it. It's yeah. Iowa City. Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. And I I hadn't thought about it until super recently, but I think gentrification has gotten worse as our relationship to work has gotten worse. 
Because I think that what happens is you're not really living in a place. You're kind of just commuting back and forth from your house. I mean, when we were commuting, but you're kind of mainly working. And I think that as work has sort of taken over our time, there's less of a a chance to exhale in the place where you reside and become a part of the community. You know, like you're rushing to drop off your laundry at the place. You don't say hello. You're rushing to grab your coffee. You don't bother knowing who the person is that's making it for you because you're like, you've got to get back and answer seven emails. It's not just necessarily the phenomena of moving to a place, because that's an oversimplification, I think. It's the phenomena of not becoming a part of a community. And I think it's because we're slightly distracted and pulled out of real life. But what I love about Mateo and the thing that is the one thing I would say is that when she meets him, because he's a native Brooklynite, it's like they have this immediate connection because he's a native Brooklynite and he also had the experience of kind of getting plucked out of Brooklyn and being dropped in like an elite educational institution and then coming back. And you see what the rest of the world is, but you chose to kind of come back here. And I think that that became like a sort of linguistic shorthand, if you will, like for them that cut through a lot of things. And it's like, she's got a confused identity. She's neither Sunset Park anymore. She's not really Manhattan, for lack of a better metaphor. She's purposely written as a kind of white passable Latina, because that's how she's gotten access into so many of these spaces. But she's also not of that world either. And it's like, what she feels she is, is 100% Brooklyn, like she feels in this place. And it's like she meets this person who also feels that way. And that helps cut through a lot of the garbage. I don't know, that's the intriguing thing that I think uh, lets that percolate in a different way for her. It's also a really interesting way to write about ambition. And it's almost unconventional in a way because here you are, Mateo comes back, Olga comes back, Prieto actually leaves to go to college upstate and comes back. And not only does he come back, he lives with grandma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in all of these conventional narratives that we look for, especially in the context of the American dream, you've got to leave. You've got to leave everything behind, your old life, your family, everything. And your characters are saying, well, actually, no. We're going to do this on our terms. There's almost an even further embracing of that as the book goes on, because one of the things that's really at odds with kind of assimilation and any migrant group, ethnic group that comes to this country where family is the root of what your group is, you're at odds with the American dream to a certain extent, because that's saying you've got to put all of your time into accumulating things that lead towards material and optic success, right? And that is all stuff that's going to pull you away from family and home. And I think that what is happening, it's like, I can't fully do that. It's like, there's no ability to fully commit to that from any of these characters. And then I think I really need to rethink what success is. And whose terms did I decide this on? You know, in some funny way, absolutely not foreseeing any of this that's happening now in the world. But I do think that that's sort of what is happening post-pandemic is that we're seeing a lot of like, what does this mean to have a good life, right? Like, what does that mean, actually? Like, and I think that what we were seeing happening in Olga is I don't never feel comfortable fully embracing this version of success. And maybe by the end, we have characters that are like, I think I need to rethink the whole thing. And what does that mean? And on whose terms was that decided? I think the whose terms is really important, too. Yes. And you mentioned this earlier. I mean, colorism is a thing. And Olga can, to a certain extent, pass for white. Yeah. And and part of this is access as a wedding planner and she has the language and she knows how to get the clients and she knows how to do the work and, and everything else. But she has a couple of moments. There's a moment where she's filming a pilot for a reality show and you handle this very carefully and you can see how it ramps up. And the director keeps saying to her, well, can you do a little dance? And he's two steps away from saying, can you put on a sombrero? Yeah. 
it's kind of appalling as you see this build and she realizes what's happening and everyone realizes she's the wrong person for this. This is the wrong. The director's not really looking at the director's own racism. (laughs) The director's just thinking, I didn't get the thing that I signed on for. So we're going to burn off this episode and it will go away. Yep. Yep. It's really kind of horrifying. It's horrifying because one of the things that I think has happened that is interesting, like, you know, I went to college in the 90s. Part of why I wanted to make her sort of that same age was because it was a very different time. Like there was very little sense of institutional responsibility to make anybody feel comfortable. It was very much like, you're welcome for the invitation. <laughs> you're getting there. It's like with your little bags, it's like, you're welcome. <laughs> And they're like, I guess we're happy you're here, but you're welcome. You know, and it's the idea that you were sort of then meant to kind of perform. Like, it's like, like okay, now we're going to invite you to be here to sit on this table and, and represent all Latino people. And you can talk about your experience as a student here. And, you know, and I think that there is this performative aspect as we think about inclusion, people think that, but they don't realize there's not even a recognition. I have witnessed this. What happens is, I, I think, is that you see that you get invited into things and realize that you were invited to fill a particular role. And then when you don't perform it, you're like, I don't know that we're going to invite you back. And I have lived that experience so many times personally that I was like, I have to explain that that's part of it. And that I think a lot of what happens, there's this internal turmoil that she has. And part of her constant stress with her cousin, Mabel, is that she recognizes, like, I don't know that if I looked like Mabel, I would have had the same opportunities because it's not about ability. Like Mabel's so on it and Mabel's amazing. Like, you know, like Mabel's amazing. Mabel's sensitive and doesn't like to feel that her cousin dissed her and like all these other things. And like, you know, she's a little bit more Brooklyn than Olga like got that sort of whittled away from her in, in college. But like when she went away to school, but like, I think this idea of like, she's so aware there's not this like blind privilege. She's like, God, I know I am here. And it leads to this like hole in her that sends her to dark places sometimes what is a beautiful thing that I really was so excited to celebrate is in the Caribbean Latino world, you are so used to everybody in your family looking different. Like you can't pretend that you don't recognize like it within a family. It's like, you know, I'm the light skinned one. Vieto is the nickname for darker. And so there's a cognition that he's the darker one. Like you're always aware. And even that he finds success in the public service arena, that is an arena with far less barriers than like a corporate world or the world of private wealth, which she migrates in, you know? And I think that was important. And their careers gave me some really good, subtle ways to sort of speak about that, that felt very true to what I've known. I will say I'd done some reality television. And when I was a wedding planner, the truth is it's not autofiction at all, but it is definitely what I like to call a pain collage. joy collage but yes like there's some moments that are definitely pulled like a law and order it's like that headline was ripped from real life there is absolutely a tv producer that will read it and probably ambivalently be like oh i think i did that Do you have a favorite moment from this book? You sort of alluded to it earlier, but it feels like you are really connected to this narrative. You're really connected to your characters. You have to have like an absolute favorite, like, I'm so glad this made it into the book. Oh my gosh. My favorite moment is 
when she's home for the day and she, God, and now I'm going to get emotional again, but she goes to church and she talks about this like secret ritual that she had with her grandmother who raised her where they would sneak off to church because her parents were like these militant socialists and like very anti-religion and anti-Catholicism. It's like the handmaid of the devil. Like, you know, like, <laughs> and that was like a funny thing because like my grandparents very much had wanted to put me in Catholic school at one point And my mother from afar was like, over my dead body? No, that was a tiny nugget that I like extrapolated into a much bigger thing. But this idea of like, you know, secrecy and this like likeness. And I think it was just this beautiful moment of sort of loss without witnessing the loss because her grandmother has been long past when we meet Olga. And yet the idea of like what that relationship meant to her and all the things that you learn from your matriarchs in some funny way. And Olga's not a mother, but I think so much of this book is about motherhood and womanhood. And the mom character, Blanca, was slightly inspired by my parents, but then also very inspired by a Puerto Rican revolutionary who I'd read about, Filiberto Ojero Rios, who I'd known about, but like when I was reading in more detail, he just left his kids and would send them like audio cassettes. And nobody talks about him and says, also terrible parent. Like it's really funny. Like that's never like combo, like revolutionary colon terrible parent. Like nobody says that because he's a man. We're still like, okay, men can leave their families and it's like not a good dad, but you never know. He was going through some stuff. And it's like, like what if that were the woman? And nobody thinks about the fact like there is a line where Blanca says like I fell in love and it was like that was your passport to becoming an adult was getting married it it wasn't a time where you just moved out of the house and especially you know if you're part of a close-knit tight-knit traditional family like you didn't just do that and so I think the idea that like who is this person who kind of picks the cause over their kids who's a woman I found that just intriguing but then also still doesn't completely abscond mothering I found her to be fascinating in some funny way her mother Abuelita is like such a loving mother she's doing the duty twice and also then there's Lola her aunt her titi Lola who never has kids but then feels such a mother to me it's funny it's like there's a lot of different takes on mothering in this book even though the main protagonist is not a mother did anything surprise you while you were writing Olga huh yes the relationship between the siblings and how important it became surprised me because he started out as a weird device for her Mm -hmm. and like to make her a little less alone in the world. And then the fourth or fifth revision, he is this fully formed person that I cherish and love so much. And I have no siblings. He's so fictitious. And yet I felt this like protective space for him. You know, I really wanted to pay homage. I think that there's a whole generation of men of color that had very little support in terms of like, how do I do this? Like there's no path. I mean, in both cases, they're both forging their own paths with little example, right? Like it's like, there's little example to lead off of. And I think that how important they both became to each other and how full and rich his character journey did become surprise to me. And yeah, and I would probably say in some funny way, a little bit Mateo, Like, I think I kept going in and thinking about it and being like, you know, he's dealing with this difficult person. She's not the easiest character. I think she's a lot of fun, but she's got a lot of baggage. And he's not a total pushover, though. And I think what was surprising to me was creating masculinity, I guess, as a writer that like lives in a pretty feminine world was like, you know, it was kind of a fun and surprising, joyful thing. And it's been fun hearing from male readers that they felt like, oh, this felt very real. You know, like it felt very 
very real. And I think that surprised me as a writer, but it also surprised me how critical their part of the story was. Yeah, as just full people. There is a piece of the book that takes place in Puerto Rico, and we're going to, we are going spoiler free in this conversation, but I bring it up because you talk about a couple of books that were very helpful for you in the research. Naomi Klein's The Battle for Paradise, Puerto Rico takes on the disaster capitalists, and then also Iris Morales's Through the Eyes of Rebel Women. And she also has a film. Yes. And I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this properly. Palante Siempre Palante? Yes, yes, yes. Palante Siempre Palante, yes. Uh-huh. She's wonderful. That was the start of the research? It started with the Young Lords research because I knew I wanted the parents to be a part of that. And then Edith's book was like amazing because it was very first person. And that is kind of what led me to want to have the letters because I realized I was like, oh, I was like, my parents totally also talk like this. Like it's like, like it's like a voice and a way of seeing the world. What was important to me about that was that, you know, we've been a bit disconnected from our history. I don't want to say all of us, like not writ large, but like we do not get taught about the Brown Power Movement. When we learn about the 60s, we don't get taught that much about our moments of agency. And I think that as I'm seeing the swell of Latinx activism now, I wanted to also connect the dots that we are coming from a lineage of this and that we have not invented it, that we have ancestors in this and children upon which to stand and examples. And I think that that reconnection and that voice was very important to me. And then, you know, when it came to Naomi Klein, that really connected the dot because I had been seeing this kind of Olga-esque character in these little stories. And I was like, I want to write a book about this girl who's neither of any world, this girl, she's a woman, she's a totally grown woman. But I also wanted to write about this bigger thing. And I was reading about disaster capitalism, but I was reading it horrified about what had been going on in Puerto Rico, but then also seeing the parallels to what is going on with gentrification in Brooklyn and in New York and and in general. And I felt that there was a way to connect those stories. And when I started to think about this mother character, that seemed to be the connective tissue that would enable me to make it all happen. And I definitely think this is a fictional book, but there is a lot of historic fact that it is based on. And there are some characters that are real in real life. And the history of Puerto Rico is 100% real. And that is relatively painstakingly researched. And obviously, Maria is quite real. I spent so much time, sad time, watching videos around the hurricane. That was a very sad, sad time and the aftermath. And so I would say like those books were big deals for me. And Naomi Klein's book, for sure, somebody asked me about like, what's the difference between fiction and nonfiction in your mind? And I was like, I think what nonfiction does, not memoir, but report of nonfiction, it paints the picture of a problem, but what fiction can do is humanize it in a particular way. And I I hope that that is part of what has happened with Olga for people. What do you want readers to know? That it's a book about resilience and love. And more than anything, I think resilience. I think these are characters and people and a people, the people of Puerto Rico that have been knocked down nine million times, but keep getting up. Balante siempre balante translates to keep going, always keep going. And that was the mantra of the young lords. And that's a, a very popular saying, but it's it's a true saying. It's like, you got to just keep going. And within this book, there are so many stumbles and falls for these characters. 
it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. It means we're going to have to get up and keep going. And I think that they're able to do that because of love and community. And I think, yeah, love, resilience, and community are really the the takeaways that I, I hope people pull from it because it was meant ultimately to be a celebration about how we forge forward and how we can find joy and love at any phase of our life, which felt very important to me to show. I'm glad you did. Sochi Gonzalez, thank you so much. We're delighted to know Olga. Olga Dies Dreaming is out now. Thank you so much. This is such a pleasure to talk to you. I I can't wait for people to get to meet Olga. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.